Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Good evening again, everyone. Welcome to our Good Friday service. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Hope. And as we think on Good Friday and the hope of the resurrection, uh, we can take to heart many of the things that were accomplished uh, in the death, burial, resurrection, and even getting before that, the life and obedience of Jesus Christ. Everything it accomplished this Sunday when we gather back on Resurrection Sunday. We're going to look at uh, John 16, 33, where in speaking of his death, uh, by saying he would be with you, and then he's going to go away, and then he's going to come back again. He says, in doing these things, he says, I have overcome the world. And in that overcoming, we see many things that Jesus accomplished. We'll see three things specifically on Sunday I invite you to come back to. We see that in Jesus, we have an unshakable joy. In Jesus, we have the love of the Father. And in Jesus, we have overcome the world. But there's far more than those three things. In fact, not only is scripture littered with myriads upon myriads, but almost any book a Christian has ever written, almost any sermon that has ever been preached, seeks to discuss what was accomplished with Jesus' death, life, burial, and resurrection. And just to give you a few examples, it's only the second page of Scripture. Genesis 3.15, where the cross is where the head of the serpent is crushed, even though he strikes the foot of the son of Eve. Colossians 1.14 shows us that Jesus atoned for our sins by canceling the record of debt, the legal ramifications of your sin, by nailing it to the cross. 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus became our propitiation for sins, which just means that he took the wrath that God had towards our sins so that we might have the pleasure of God instead. He absorbed punishment in your place so that your experience with God is new. 1 Peter 1, 8 says the cross ransoms us out of our futile way of thinking. After being trapped of thinking only of how to please ourselves and live as our own God, we are able to think about how to live for the glory of God, to be inspired or empowered by the Holy Spirit, to live a life that pleases God. In Romans 5, 9, it says that by the blood of the cross, you have been justified. That because of what Jesus has done, you are declared innocent in the eyes of the judge who knows every wrong action and errant thought. We can, we should, we will talk about all that Jesus has accomplished for us in the Easter events, which give us the substance of what we call the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But tonight, I want us to consider not what Jesus accomplished, but why Jesus accomplished it. I made the mistake this week of looking up the Wikipedia page on Easter. And I realize there's all sorts of misunderstandings and false assumptions about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And maybe you're new to Christianity or you're still figuring out what it is. The events of the cross might seem odd and out of place given how Christians speak about love and about God as Father. 
And yet here we celebrate something that seems angry and bloody. It seems to be a paradox. One such critique that has come up lately, maybe you've read it, maybe you've heard it in your Religion 101 class or seen somebody post it on Facebook, is that the cross is nothing more than cosmic child abuse. That it is where God the Father sent his son to die. Even if it was to save people, even if it was to accomplish something, what kind of father would send his son to die? Seems to be calloused, loveless. Who would want to follow a God like this? Well, the answer we see in Scripture is his son. Jesus actually tells us about his relationship towards God and his desire in pursuing these Easter events, which inform us. We don't have to guess why Jesus went to the cross because he actually tells us. And he was motivated by something far more than fear or external pressure. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that despite the pain, despite the rejection of a sword, despite the real death that Jesus was going to experience, it was for the joy set before him that he endured it. What motivated Jesus was joy. But what is the substance of that joy? What drove that joy? What got him to act for the sake of joy? And that's what we're going to look at briefly tonight in our Easter series. We've been picking up pieces of the Easter story in the Gospel of John. We're going to examine the heart of Jesus that is on display in the Last Supper the last meal Jesus shares with his disciples before he leaves and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where he is betrayed and arrested and then led and tried in a mock trial and crucified, which is what we just read in John chapter 19. This last supper in the Gospel of John stretches two chapters, John chapter 13 and John chapter 14. And actually what's interesting is you will notice that there are two bookends. The very first verse, the very last verse, Give us a glimpse into Jesus' heart, into the events that are going to follow, his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And looking at those, we see what drives Jesus are two things. The first is his heart towards his own disciples, and the second is his heart towards his Father. And let's begin by looking at the motivation which is presented in John chapter 13, in the opening of the Last Supper. John writes this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Knowing full well, Jesus is not watching his life unfold as we would. He knows his hour has come. And knowing this, in his last hours, his motivation, his purpose, and his actions were driven by love for his own. Love, it says, even to the end. And this is our first point tonight. Here we see the cross and Jesus' love for his own. What motivated the cross was this loving desire for his own brothers and sisters, which means that if you want to see Jesus' love for you, he's directing it here to the cross. This is where he wants you to see his love for his own. And I love the intensity, which John is often called the apostle of love. He writes about it a lot. And he doesn't just say Jesus loved those. What he does say is he had. 
in his life, in his teaching, in his miracles, in his long suffering with his disciples who were often wrestling with understanding what he was saying, he loved them. But then he goes on to talk about this continued and ongoing thing that Jesus was going to love them to the end. Remember, this is the waning moments of Jesus' life. Not only is Jesus about to walk into the most tragic experience he will ever know, that any human could ever know, he's spending his last hours hanging out with the very people who are causing him to march to Calvary. He's about to wash the feet and pray for the very people whose wickedness, sin, and debt of death would drive the nails into his very hands. And yet he did so without any frustration. How often are you asked by your spouse, your roommate, maybe even your kids, to do something, to serve them, and you don't really want to, but you get up to do it, and you don't say anything, but every nonverbal signal you give to that person says, I'm doing this thing, but I don't want to be doing this thing, and I want you to know that I don't want to be doing this thing. Or even more so, in a moment of genuine sacrifice, where there's a twinge of regret towards whomever it is that required you to expend whatever it is you're about to expend. Or even in moments of trial, suffering, or even imminent death, you consider it a time for you to be served, for you to be catered to, or to be left on your own. But here, towards the very ones whose sin would inflict the greatest pain he would ever know, Jesus refused to be motivated by anything except for love. There is nothing begrudging about Christ, our brother. No sideways looks, no rolling of the eye, no huffing under his breath, only the privilege of loving them to the end. If you've ever wondered what it's like to come to Jesus, here we see his heart. Here is love, love to the end. Love not just for those who are in the room with them, but love for all those who are his, all those who were his own, all who would belong to Jesus drove him in loving obedience to the cross. Jesus' love was not love in general, not love undefined, but love for his own. Look at how Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus loved his disciples to the end. He was driven by joy to walk to the cross where he would lay down his life because he knew that in laying down his life in this act of love, it would actually accomplish something. Jesus didn't just want to give the world a sign. You want to know how much I love you? I love you enough to die for you. That would have been great. That would have been wonderful. But Jesus is far more powerful, far more significant in the plan of redemption of simply being a sign. His love accomplished something for his own. His love would keep his own. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say in a marvelous way, it is probable. It is possible. I've done my part, you do yours. He said, it is finished. 
that in his love, he would save those who would come to him in faith. It was a powerful love, a potent love. It was not a passive love. It was a a divine love, a definite love, a peculiar love. Jesus went to the cross because he loves those he was going to save and he was going to save those whom he was going to love. There was no one at risk. None of his people were at risk because of the loving actions he was about to partake of. You see, you cannot disassociate Jesus' love from his salvation. You can disassociate a lot of things about your life. You can disassociate yourself even from your spouse. You can disassociate yourself from your hobby. You can disassociate yourself from your job. But here, you cannot disassociate Jesus' love from his desire and his ability to save those whom he loved. To be loved by Jesus is to respond with faith in Jesus, to belong to him in faith. And to belong to Jesus in faith is to be loved by Jesus. And here, here's this two-sided rope of relief for whenever we are in doubt. When you wonder and you look at your sin, could Jesus love me? You are driven by the loveliness of Jesus. He says, if you love me, you belong to me in faith. So take up faith and belong to him. But then for those who do belong, and there are seasons which wage war. We'll talk about this more on Sunday. There are seasons in this life. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But if you have faith, if you belong to Jesus, then you are loved by Jesus. This is the rope wherein wherever we are, we can pull ourselves into assurance of salvation through faith in Christ and the love Christ has for those who are his own. Yet we see on the cross this reality we ought to mourn over our sins. But what Jesus wants to show his disciples is you ought also to see how much he loves the sinner. It's as Isaac Watts says in the 1700s in his hymn, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Why was Jesus driven to the cross? He embraced the cross so that he can embrace the sinner who comes to him, who is his own because of his great love for sinners. But this is not the only love which drove Jesus to the cross. Look at how he concludes the Last Supper in John 14, verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Before Jesus marches to the place where he is betrayed, he says, I am obeying the Father's command so that the world might know that I love the Father. The commands, the so that, the purpose that he's talking about is dying on the cross. That is the obedience that is set before him. That is what it looks like for Jesus to obey the Father. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians 2, obedience even to the point of death, death on a cross. But why did Jesus obey? Not only because he loves us, but that we might also see Jesus' immense love for the Father. This is our second point today. The cross and Jesus' love for his Father. So in preparation for our Easter series, we're camping out in the book of John. We'll be there this Sunday and the following Sunday. I read it front to back a handful of times. I've always found a good Bible study tip is just read a book in one sitting. 
It's hard, we get distracted. We're, it's hardwired into our brain to stop when we get to the next set of big numbers, but I promise you can read past it. Um, but in reading through it, almost every time I got to this point, it stopped me in my tracks. Because here we see Jesus talking about his love for his father. And I find that something when we consider the Easter events, we often don't think about. So you think of Christ's love for us, Perhaps it's easy to think of God's love for his son. But in part, there are aspects of theology and good Bible reading that cause us to maybe pause when we consider Jesus' love for the Father in the Easter events. In fact, what we've just read in Isaiah 53 is that it was the Father's will to crush him, to put him to death. Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, he says, yeah, yeah, you men killed Jesus. You Jews did it, willingly, joyfully, obediently, but you did so according to God's predetermined plan. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that this cross, this sending his son to obediently die was the center of the fullness of all time. God wanted his son to die. And we often think that in that moment, we might not talk about the son's love for the father. But here, Jesus obeys the Father willingly, jointly agreeing to the plan of redemption, celebrating and rejoicing in it, not only because he loves the Father, but did you see it? He wants you to see how much he loves the Father. And what's interesting is that in this following statement, uh, what, we're in John chapter 14, and then there's going to be John chapter 15 and 16 and 17. And in there, we see this high priestly prayer. Jesus brings the disciples to himself in Gethsemane, and he pulls back the curtain of this eternal love that there is in the Godhead. And he talks about God's immense love for the Son. He talks that if you come to God through the Son, God loves you as the Son, Jesus says, I pray this so that they might enter into this love that we had had for all eternity. But what's interesting, and maybe you can prove me wrong, in my time reading through John this week, I looked. Despite where in John 17, we are reading about this wonderful love inside the Trinity. It is only here. John 14, 31, where Jesus in speaking about his obedience to the point of death, talks about and boasts in his love for the Father. Speaking of the staggering love he has for God the Father. When I uh, proposed to Sarah, you guys are getting a glimpse into Tyler's emotional life, which is awkward for me. So I brought her up to look out and pass, and I had taken pictures of these token places in our relationship, and it was like, here was our first date. The next picture is here where I apologized for the things I said in our first date, no joke. Um, there's a story there. And then um, some other key frames, and then I pulled out an empty frame, and I said, and this is where I asked you to marry me. Isn't that cute? Yeah. <laughs> but I pulled out this thing, I said, this, this is where I want you to know that I love you. Out of all the things Jesus did on earth, the cross is where he pulls out that frame for your sake. Say, this is where I show you I love the Father. 
This is where I want you to see how beautiful he is. Part of Jesus' love for you is his costly act of obedience wherein you would see his love for his father. Now, why would he do this? Why would Jesus not just say, I love the father, but to go out of his way to say, I want you to see, I want the world to see how much I love the father. Because here in Jesus, in the face of affliction, in the world's greatest trial, we see how cosmically captivating God the father is. Despite all of the darkness which is going to come, the love he has for the father is greater because there is nothing more lovely than God the Father. I remember when our family was driving down to San Diego, we stopped in Sarah's old hometown along the way. And I had never been there before, but you hear these stories, these tales of what life was like. She had this wildlife preserve, uh, which sounds great until you find out it, it was a, like a kangaroo rat preserve. So if you want to protect rats, that's what this thing did. And, uh, but she talks about running around in the hills and building forts, and I imagine it to be this children's utopia. It's in Riverside, California. Don't know if you've been there. Um, it's not a utopia, but she went there, and she showed it off to us, and she was brimming with joy. She was showing us the rock that they would play on and the tree wherein they would build their forts under it, and she was doing all of that to say, don't you love it too? Look at how great this was. It wasn't great. But where Sarah pointed to the burnt, scorched hills of Southern California, Christ here points to the cross where he was going to reconcile sinners to God through his blood. And he says, isn't it wonderful? Isn't he lovely? Isn't he beautiful? This God who is going to work this for my good, for the good of the son who would be crushed, and for your good. Jesus is the one who knit the fabrics of the galaxies by his own hand. He established the world on a pedestal. He's the one who painted the wings of every butterfly you'll ever see. He is the one who created the entire color spectrum out of thin air. But what captivates the heart of the one who captivates us, even with his created beauty, is God, his heavenly father. Jesus, as God, the second person of the Trinity, realizes the wonder there is in God the Father. And not only should this be something that snaps our attention to a loveliness, which when reading the scripture and speaking of our love for God, that we sometimes think little of, but don't we see here in our battle for obedience how love drives us deeper than obligation or effort ever could. Drives our obedience in difficult and costly places. Obedience becomes joyful when you have a father as lovely as this. It was the cross where Jesus was going to be crushed, but Jesus knew that his father's promise was that he was also going to be glorified. It was on the cross where he would be abandoned in his humanity, where he would cry out, why have you forsaken me? But also in his divinity as the eternal son of God, he knew he had the smile of the father. No act of obedience you could ever do in this world is as costly as what Jesus faced on the cross. And yet, 
he suffered no loss, as difficult as it was. Because this Father, his plan for redemption, the eternal plan which God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit struck up to redeem us is so beautiful that even when the Son of God became man and died for the sake of sinners, he could only see the Father as lovely. Jesus wants you to see his love for his Father, not only because he wants you to see what you get to share in, in salvation, but because he wants to equip your obedience, even in the face of hardship, with the same delight. That those who live life around you might see your life and it might say that you might know I love the Father that in laying down my life for those around me, I suffer no loss and see him only as worthy of every ounce of sacrifice. On Good Friday, it is right, it is proper to reflect on our own sin. It is right to see God the Father as a God of justice who was angry against sin because sin destroys and kills. But it's also right to pause and consider that towards us and towards God the Father, Jesus was driven by a love, a love that saves and a love that satisfies by inviting us in to worship a God as good as this. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have chosen to love us in such a way. We thank you that you, in a world that loves talking about love, love is often empty. It fails to move towards people in sacrificial ways. In fact, even when calls to love ask us to give up certain aspects of what we have or how we think, we defensively say that this can't be love. But Jesus, in in this wonderful ecosystem of love, You set forth to do the hard work of living obediently where we failed, of dying sacrificially where we deserved, and of rising gloriously to triumph over the grave so that all who have hope in you might share in the love you have for us, the love you have with the Father and with the Spirit, and to obey joyfully all the rest of our days. And so, Lord, this Good Friday, we thank you that though we are sinners, we are loved by Jesus. And we are one to a God who loves us even in difficult acts of obedience because of what his son has done in our place. I praise in your name, amen.